Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe on the new deal the Premier says is necessary for Western Canada. Dr. Colvinder Gill, the president of Concerned Ontario Doctors on the health care troubles in this country. Ted Morton was the former Alberta finance minister, and uh, we spoke with the former minister on the issue of Alberta separation. Mark Manduka from Citibank on the rising cost of flight shaming, and what happened in Quebec on Monday during the federal election when Quebec has returned so many Bloc Québécois members. Member of the Parti Québécois, Nino Colavecchio, joined us from Montreal. Joining us on the program is Stuart Bell, national online journalist investigative for Global News. And Stuart has been to the camps where ISIS uh, individuals are, are captured and have spoken to Stuart. Stuart, thank you for the time. And what's your immediate response? What's your reaction? You've, you've seen the ISIS individuals. You've been to the region. What's the reaction going to be to what Trump announced this morning? Well, I mean, first of all, let's just reflect on who Baghdadi was. I mean, this is a man who brought back, as part of his ideology, uh, slavery, rape, ethnic cleansing, mass executions, um, you know, looting and theft of cities, and creepy kind of religious police enforcing morality codes. Um, I mean, the guy was a walking, talking crime against humanity. So, um, first of all, just you know, I think we need to acknowledge that he's no longer. The fact that he's no longer walking and talking is uh, is progress. But you have to remember also that um, when you speak to ISIS members or followers, uh, they have a pretty consistent response, and that's that they don't see themselves as fighting for any particular leader. They see themselves as fighting for God, uh, or at least their you know their interpretation of what that means. Um, so the loss of leader, you know to some extent it's it's uh, uh it's huge uh in another it's not yeah i i was i was wondering about how much of a blow this is is to isis not, not only to the what whatever remains of the of the organization but also of the philosophy and the appeal of isis to impressionable youth that's an yeah, issue that we had to deal with yeah no i think it definitely is a blow i mean remember uh baghdadi was not only the leader of ISIS. He was the self-appointed caliph of the Islamic State. Right. Um, so that is a, you know, it, it's going to be difficult to fill that particular role and to generate the kind of uh, support that he was able to get to convince people to travel to the Islamic State and that kind of thing. And you have to remember as well that this is coming at a time, his death is coming at a time when the physical caliphate is gone. It's been six months since they lost their last bit of territory in Syria. Um, there's you know, thousands of ISIS members that are in prisons. Uh, been a lot fewer international attacks linked to ISIS. Um, you know, so it's a blow, and I guess the question is what uh, what happens next. When Donald Trump said the world is a much safer place, is it? Stuart, is the world a much safer place? Uh, you know, I think time will tell. It's going to depend on how the movement reacts to this. And there's a couple of scenarios. On the one hand, um, you know, they could just appoint a new leader, uh, whether that leader would have the same kind of 
charisma and appeal as Baghdadi, it's difficult to say. Um, they could merge with other groups. They could you know, form some kind of alliance with Al-Qaeda. Some indications they were doing that already because he was found, uh, he was apparently located in an area where he had, uh, you know, there were, there were fighters who were not ISIS. They were different uh, type of ideology. Or they could just kind of fade and, and carry on as a nuisance in the places where they have regional groups to carry the banner. Uh, so a lot's going to depend on uh, how the organization reacts to the loss of its leader. Does the uh, does the uh, the death of uh, Abu uh, Bakr al Baghdadi compare in any way, or how do you compare it with the with the death of Osama bin Laden? I think it's very similar. Um, you had a leader who had been in hiding for some time, uh, who was very much the face of his organization, still appearing. You know, Baghdadi was still making uh, appearances in video, even as recently as a few weeks ago. He had released a video. Uh, directed at trying to get uh, attacks to liberate women from the camps. Um, so the same kind of uh, you know, same kind of scenario, um, and the fact that they were able to locate him and, and take him out, um, and you know it may have the same impact on the organization in the sense that Al Qaeda really hasn't been able to find a leader anywhere near. Uh, with anywhere near the appeal as Bin Laden, but it's still carried on. I mean, Al Qaeda has has continued on. Uh, you know, it's it's been steady in its uh, uh, in its progress in uh, its particularly sort of regional affiliates. So that may be the direction that we see ISIS go as well. No, nobody really able to replace Baghdadi, but um, local groups carrying the banner, so to speak. So uh, we're not sure yet whether the world is a safer place, but we are sure it's a better place with him gone. Well, I, I, you know, I think it's safe to say it's safer to the extent that uh, a man who brought just absolutely horrendous atrocities to the world uh, is no longer among us, and so therefore unable to um, to revive. You know, I, I kind of wonder whether or not uh, the fact that he was caught had something to do with the changes on the ground that he was trying to exploit. He was apparently preparing to move locations. Uh, perhaps he was trying to take advantage of the situation in northeast Syria, uh, and now he's not able to do that. He's okay. not able to uh, just kind of lead any kind of resurgence of ISIS, which definitely makes us safer. Stuart, thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Good talking to you. Thanks, Roy. Stuart Bell, a national online journalist investigative for Global News on the uh, the end of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the uh, ISIS leader, uh, is gone. The U.S. Special Forces took care of that. But we're going to begin the hour with Peter Downing, the founder of the Alberta Wexit movement. And just before we do that, I want you to listen to a few seconds of my conversation yesterday on this program with the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe. There just doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, another direction. There seems to be these words of that, that the federal government will be there to support you, but then they turn around and, you know, move forward with uh, legislation like Bill C-69 that really hinders our ability to get our products to market, our energy products. Doesn't sound a whole lot like there's been communication from uh, the PMO with the Premier, although the Prime Minister seems to be suggesting that's already taken place. Mr. Moe with us yesterday. Always good to talk to the Saskatchewan Premier. Peter Downing is the founder of the Alberta Wexit Movement. He joins us 
on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Peter, how are you? Hey, I'm good, Roy. How are you? Well, I'm fine. It's good to talk to you. We, we talked earlier this year, I think it was around, I think in March we talked about uh, the, the whole beginning of the Wexit movement or where you were at that point. How would you estimate, how, how do you look at uh, where you are today compared to where you were in, in March? Uh, where we were in March is we were starting phase one of our change management model when we looked at, obviously, the electoral math that in Ontario there's 121 seats, in Quebec there's 78 seats in the House of Commons, and in Alberta there are 34. Obviously, our vote federally does not count, uh, whether you're in Alberta or Saskatchewan. Um, but at that time, it was phase one of our change management model, which was the awareness just the awareness of separate, uh, separatist sentiment and discontent. Uh, we achieved that through our billboards and subsequent social media growth and further billboard campaigns that we did. Um, we moved into uh, event-based rallies. Uh, we're, we're averaging about 100 people coming out to our rallies in Edmonton and Calgary and Red Deer. And as, you know, the, the, you know, I became to get, you know, everybody's saying I became to get noticed as, sort of the leader of the movement, the leader of Western populism or Alberta populism, and Wexit became the brand or the party associated with it. The only thing that was needed left was a Justin Trudeau re-election. And uh, our talking points all the way up to the election is just watch the separatist movement explode. Just watch it explode. And with Justin Trudeau's re-election, that really capped up phase one of our change management model, which was awareness. Just basically taking the voter in Alberta or Western Canada who has you know, had no real thought about separation before to voting yes on a, sep- a, re- a referendum to separate. So talk so to us, please. No I, I want to talk to you about, uh, have you tell us, please, what uh, what level of support you have um, after the before the election and after the election. But first, let's do this. Explain to us, please, uh, explain to the listeners who are, you know, tuned in across the country, who've heard the term Wexit, Alberta, maybe not sure of whether you're committed to separating, they're trying to separate the province of Alberta from the rest of the country, or whether this is a, a final shot across the bows, either you get it right this time, or we're definitely going to move to leave. What's the what's the what's the what's the objective here? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that a Trudeau minister just before I came on, a Trudeau minister says there's nothing off the table. We can open up equalization formulas. You know, it really goes further than that. Um, the only real thing that could keep Alberta in particular, and, and again, Saskatchewan, support for Saskatchewan separatism. Uh, obviously, you had Scott Moe, it's through the roof there. British Columbia, there's a big interest in the north and in the interior. Western Manitoba, um, big, big support there. Um, Steve, Stephen Harper campaigned on equal elected, effective Senate. And he went to Ottawa. He was the prime minister, obviously, he's from Calgary. Went to Ottawa. He, he was there for nine years as prime minister in the seat and couldn't get it done. The reality is, is that Canada was set up as a, a political, a compromise, a pact between Ontario and Quebec to protect the economic and political privilege of Ontario, the language, cultural and religious um, privilege of Quebec. Atlantic Canada was forced into it by the British who wanted to ditch their defense capabilities. And Western Canada wasn't there in um, 1867. Um, so, you know, whether it be an equal elected effective Senate, you know, Stephen Harper tried and failed. And um, if Trudeau ministers are talking about equalization, that's just a symptom of the real problem, which is no regional checks and balances. So, Peter, are you saying are you saying it's too late? It's over. Forget about it. As far as you're concerned and as far as the solid support for Wexit is concerned, Wexit, Alberta, you're saying it's too late. We're we're moving to separation. The reality is, is we've got over 100,000 people out of jobs for every but for every percentage increase in unemployment in Alberta, 16 more Albertans take their lives. 
you know, you've got Greta Thunberg, a 16-year-old girl who comes here, and the Prime Minister and everybody's making a big deal about it. But we got lots of 16-year-old girls in Alberta and in Western Canada whose dads are out of work, and they're uncertain about their future. they got to move, school, uh, leaving their friends, all that kind of stuff going on. And the divorces, again, divorces, abuse, domestic violence, suicides, all that stuff going up. And it seems like folks in Eastern Canada and Ontario in particular don't care because despite the train wreck that was the past four years of Justin Trudeau and everything he did, which, which we could recap if we wanted to, time short, but um, he, he got reelected again. And we're sitting here like, what, would it, what, what, what does it take for folks to care about Western Canada, for Alberta in particular? And, and how could you reelect this guy who's committed, he's openly committed to phasing out the oil sands? Yeah, I can only counter by the, by saying this to you, that when I hear from people in Ontario, and I know this isn't going to convince you of anything, but when I hear from people in Ontario, it's always, almost invariably, solid individual support for Western Canada and great concern for Alberta and Western Canadians. That's what I hear. I know you're going to tell me that's surveillance material, and I can't argue that point. No, I'm, not, I'm not going to say that. I think, the genu- I think the sentiment is genuine, but the sentiment has to translate into something tangible. You need to recognize. If it's not, Peter, Peter, if it's not Justin Trudeau, would things be different? Well, it could be worse. Than, it could be worse than Justin Trudeau. You're you're asking us to take risks that it could be somebody even worse than Justin Trudeau. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm just asking. I'm just talking to you. Um, I know. I, I'm just. I'm just saying that, that's, uh, the, that's, that's the logic. You know that I'm. A, you know that I'm a huge supporter of Alberta, and I'm a huge supporter of Albertans. Always will be. Always have been. That's not going to change. But I love my country, and uh, and and when I hear this kind of sentiment. I get it, but at the same time, I, like many other Canadians, find it deeply troubling. We get it, and we know we know why you're angry, why you're upset, why you feel that Alberta has been, been to, the caboose on the train affect, for far too long. I get it. And it's going to affect you guys personally when we do separate. So here's my recommendation. Yeah. And I'll tell you, this is the train. We are marching towards separation. What I would, I would suggest and highly advise is for folks in Ontario to start the discussion about yeah you know what what can we give up because right now the senate this we have six senators for a population of 4.3 million people in alberta nova scotia new brunswick each have under a million but they got 10 senators each i live in the riding in alberta that has the least representation in all of canada we have one member of parliament for 160,000 people it would take four votes of my friends and neighbors to equal one vote of somebody on the east coast you got to open that stuff up because we're marching forward. If you do what you have to do on your end to get the talks going, to have an equal elected and effective Senate, um, because we, we are marching towards separation. Well, I, uh, I talked about this yesterday. When you take Quebec and Ontario, between them have 199 seats. So you could win the two provinces, still lose 29 of those seats, of those 199, and still form a majority government with 170 seats. How is that possibly even beginning to be fair to the other eight provinces? I get it. I get it. Uh, Peter, we're, I, I want to talk to you again. I'm sorry that we've, we have such limited time today, but I do want to talk to you again. I hope you'll come back on the show. Hey, always. Thank you for the invite. Anytime. All right, Peter. Take care. Peter Downing, uh, Wexford, Alberta. They've had a tremendous surge in in support since the election on their Facebook page. I was going to talk to him about that because apparently Facebook is making it more difficult now for Wexit Alberta. Uh, joining us on the program, and we're always pleased to have him as a guest, 
Dwayne Bratt, political science professor at Mount Royal University, and he's the author of Canada, the Provinces, and the Global Nuclear Revival. Professor Bratt, good to talk to you. Hey, Roy. So I'm receiving emails saying that 70% of Canadians voted for the carbon tax in the election, and I'm trying to reply that that is not the case. There wasn't a 70% vote for the carbon tax. There was a 66% vote um, that went uh, to the to the NDP and the Greens and the uh, and the Bloc Québécois, but it wasn't a 70% vote for the carbon tax. Would you explain to us, please, from your perspective, what exactly is happening in uh, in Alberta? And if a vote on Alberta leaving Confederation were held today, what would happen? Well, there's always been a sort of, whether you want to call it Western alienation or Alberta separatist element in this province, pretty much since we joined Confederation in 1905. And it spiked at various times. I mean, you know, fights over the Crow rate uh, and the, uh, the, the CPR, that damn CPR, and then the National Energy Program in the early 1980s, which actually led to the election provincially of a separatist MLA up until today. And I think we're in a we're in a situation that is probably as difficult as we've ever been. Um, I think it's probably at its peak throughout history. And one of the reasons that it's at a peak is a combination of a very severe recession that started to kick in in late 2014 and really hasn't ended. And it's led to about 150,000 jobs being lost and wage cuts and all of that human impact that, that goes with that economic loss, combined with a sentiment that there are parts of the rest of Canada, whether that's the B.C. government, whether that's the Quebec government, and especially the Trudeau government, trying to stifle and prevent the recovery of Alberta. And then you have the election of Jason Kenney last spring, uh, actively running against Trudeau in the spring election, actively running against Trudeau in the federal election, 70% of Albertans voting for the Conservative Party, wiping out the, the Liberals. And there's an awful lot of anger in the province right now. That doesn't necessarily mean separatism. I don't think they could get a majority of separatists uh, vote. And I think part of that is a deep emotional attachment to the rest of the country. And the fact that many Albertans come from different parts of the, the country, but do not underestimate uh, the, the force that this has. And there are also two premiers, specifically you mentioned Premier Kenny, but there's also Premier Mo, yeah. who are saying to uh, Mr. Trudeau and the federal government, enough. So you have the provincial leadership standing up and pushing back to Ottawa. I don't know that I recall it happening with this kind of force in my life before. Yeah, you saw some of that in in the you know in the 1980 period um, over the national energy program. At the same time that that was going on, you also had negotiations over the patriation of the constitution. So, 80, 81, 82 was also a very difficult time period. This seems different, and I think it seems different because it has been brewing for a much longer period of time, 
and we have the memories and the history of what happened in 80, 81, 82. And um, the, the place of Alberta and Saskatchewan is very different now than it was back then. You know, so if you look at the issue of equalization, you know, Saskatchewan over the last decade um, has been a contributor to equalization, where in 1981 it was a recipient of equalization. In the case of Alberta, because of the way the formula works and because of some of the time lags, despite the recession here, there's still an, a large input uh, into the equalization program from Albertans. Um, and I always have to caution this, and I, it's, it's very difficult, particularly when I'm speaking to people in Atlantic Canada, that despite all of that economic stuff that I talked about, which is true, Alberta still remains a stronger economy than other parts of the, the country. And so has, it, there's yeah. kind of a duality there that's that can be sometimes difficult to explain for people outside of the province. Right. Um, when you have Carla Qualtrough, Trudeau minister, yeah. telling Mercedes Stevenson for the West Block for Global Television that, quote, nothing is off the table, uh, including the equalization formula, that's a very interesting statement to make because well, if nothing's off the table, then does that mean C-69 and C-48 are suddenly negotiable? And that's yeah. what certainly Premier Mo on this program yesterday was calling for. Oh, absolutely. And and I will say, I think some of the response from Mo and Kenny in the day after the election, where they were saying to Trudeau, well, if you want to help Alberta and Saskatchewan, get rid of the federal carbon backstop, change the equalization formula, repeal Bill C-69, Bill C-48. You know, quite frankly, Trudeau wins the election on some of those issues. He's not about to reverse course. I'm not sure Trudeau has a lot of uh, levers on how he can make things better, um, but he can make things a lot worse. And I think the Trans Mountain Pipeline is a clear illustration of that. So far, Trudeau is saying the right things about Trans Mountain, but if he stopped the work on Trans Mountain, uh, you know, you might as well add 10% to the separatist sentiment in these provinces. So may I do this? May I ask you for your call on what's going to happen over the next two years? Let's assume that we have a minority government that will stick around for, it'll be safe probably for a year, right? Would that be a yeah. fair fair assessment to be safe, uh, I safe think for a year? This is, I think this is a pretty stable minority. Okay. Um, there are only 13 seats away from a majority. Um, you know, they've got a 36 37-seat lead over the Conservatives. Um, I don't think anybody is in a rush for an election anytime soon. Yeah. Of course, there are issues that are still pending, like SNC-Lavalin, because we know the RCMP have spoken with Jody Wilson-Raybould, who was reelected, so who knows what's going to happen with that, and there are people who are sending me emails saying there's going to be obstruction of justice charge against the Prime Minister, and I said, don't don't, don't count on it. No. But, but certainly it's something that's being it's out there. Um, would you say then that well, what twenty four months is is about right oh, or, or I, I longer? Would say at least I would say at least twenty four. Okay. Months, yeah. So would you be able to look down that road twenty four months and say predict what's going to happen as far as um, east west west east uh, national relations are concerned? I mean. It, it... Time can heal a lot of wounds. Right. So, I mean, things are white hot right now because we just had the immediacy of the, of the election. Right. 
Um, as I said, I don't think Trudeau has a whole lot of levers, nor does he have credibility to reach out. But there are things that he could do to make things worse. And I mentioned Trans Mountain. Mm-hmm. The other, and there's these ideas floating around that he needs to appoint some senators or some representatives. Um, and, and the names being floated out would just make things worse. So Ralph Goodell. Ralph was a good cabinet minister for many decades with liberals. Then he gets defeated. If you take a politician who's just been defeated and then give him a role saying, well, you're now going to speak for Saskatchewan, what does that say to the people who voted against him, right? That would be insulting. Likewise, appointing, you know, Nahed Nenshi, the mayor of Calgary, um, who is really not liked by conservatives, would also be a real stick in the eye. So things like that, Trudeau could make worse. And Jason Kenney, um, has come up with, with a couple of ideas. One, and, and I think this is actually a good one, is a panel. He's going to create a panel. Uh, he says that it will be led by a prominent Albertan or two that will look at Alberta's place in Confederation. Okay. And they're going to do public hearings across the province. And I know exactly what's going to happen. You're going to get every Alberta separatist and Wexit supporter showing up um, to these meetings, but that will be a very visceral tool to demonstrate to the national media, to demonstrate to the Trudeau government that this isn't just artificial anger, that these are real people in small towns and big cities. And it will allow the provincial government to say, look, we've got a panel dealing with this. We can focus on governing. Right. So that will provide an outlet, I think, for that anger. And then they could probably come up with, with some good ideas okay. uh, about Alberta's place. So I think time and and a willingness not to make things worse are probably the best that we can expect. Dwayne, thank you for the time. Always, always very helpful to talk to you. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Roy. All the best. Dwayne Bratt, professor of political science at Mountain Royal University and author of Canada, the Provinces, and the Global Nuclear Revival. Brian Peckford former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, he blogs at peckford42.wordpress.com, peckford42.wordpress.com. And uh, the blog is just taken off like crazy. That's because that's it's so good. Because, Premier, what you do is you, uh, you tell it the way you see it, and if a toe happens to get in the way, too bad. Well, uh, I, 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 I think I've been like that most of my life and uh, I like to to go where the facts are and talking about the attractions to the United States when after I retired from politics and got into consulting I had a a company from Iceland in the aquaculture business and they wanted to come to North America and their first idea was to come to Canada Atlantic Canada or Pacific Canada uh, to practice aquaculture and uh, I was hired by them to seek out uh, opportunities in Canada for them, which I did. And they came over many times, and we had meetings from Newfoundland to British Columbia. We ended up in the state of Maine. Nowhere in Canada, state of Maine. Yeah. What was it about the state so, of Maine? Uh, I'm quite familiar with that. It's, of course, it's accelerated over the years, right? and it's accelerated now since the election because there's quite a few companies that perceive that uh, what's happening in Canada today is a race to the level of taxation and regulation uh, is such that it's not going to change anytime soon in their favor 
and so they're looking uh, at greener pastures and of course being a, a big neighbor there uh, it's easy to to find an opportunity in texas or florida or some other state like that well you have to think that i, I was speaking to one real estate agent in the state of texas uh, montgomery county he said is where he was i thought it was lubbock area i'm not all that familiar with the geography of Texas, but he said, no, no, we're not Lubbock. They have their own thing going on in Lubbock. He's in Montgomery County. So we have one real estate agent, and through he and and his his realty company, they've placed over 100 Canadian companies in the last 10 years, 40 in the last 18 months, and he's projecting there'll be another 100 in the next 12 months. And I asked him, I said, I asked him, Premier, I said, is it all people from uh, companies from Western Canada? He said, oh, no. Yeah, he said, you know, I get uh, from Quebec and Ontario and and everywhere. Yeah, no, 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 no question. I've uh, visited Texas and uh, uh, spent some time there in the San Antonio, Austin area and that whole region there. And uh, uh, I mean, I know uh, that uh, it's a very, very healthy place for for businesses to, and now with their, uh, you know, their uh, fracking um, revolution there in oil and gas, especially in oil in Texas, a lot of the drilling companies from Alberta have gone down there in Mm -hmm. the last three or four years, Mm -hmm. and especially in the last two years, uh, and uh, just moved their their, their equipment and all down there and and are taking advantage of the fracking revolution that's happening down there. And for some of these companies, uh, it's it's a matter of survival. No question. It's just a complete matter of survival, especially if there's any downturn here. If there's a dip in the activity and you're paying this exorbitant tax, both provincially and federally, uh, the combined tax rate uh, is such that, and then very often there might be a regulation that gets in the way, uh, then uh, they're gone. You know, they, they, can't, they can't take that kind of, uh, uh, you know, it's very sensitive and very fragile. So any downturn at all, because the taxes are so high, has a you know a disproportionate amount of effect upon those kinds of companies. You have so much experience in the world of politics. You know how it works. You know how how, how decisions are made and who makes them. So if we have this reality again, we're talking to one real estate agent who's moved a hundred companies over ten years. Plans on uh, expects there'll be another hundred over the next twelve months, based on what he's seen over the last few days. And then you then you say that's one one real estate agent in the United States. So that's, there are others who are who are probably doing similar things. Why is it? Why don't we in this country? And I've talked to business people who said the same thing to me. Uh, rules and regulations are made by people who've never had to meet a payroll. So, right. but but who makes the decisions that make it so difficult for a business to survive? Why aren't we bending over backwards to provide whatever assistance? is necessary to keep these businesses a in canada b operational and c employing we are we are we do not have the entrepreneurial culture like they do in the united states what does that mean that that means that we're not risk takers we're not uh we're not attracted to people in business in the same way as they are in the united states business in canada is not very often looked upon as a worthy uh, activity. So this would be like your this would be like your fellow Newfoundlander, Seamus O'Regan, saying that foreign entrepreneurs were better than Canadian entrepreneurs. Yeah. Or if exactly. you came from another, if you if you came to Canada from somewhere another part of the world, you were probably uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I'm pro- may, I may be out by a few degrees, but 
that 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 the that the born Canadian entrepreneurs are not as productive as as entrepreneurs have come other, from other yeah, parts of the world. Uh, often, and uh, as I said to you on this program some, a couple of months ago now, perhaps the World Bank on uh, ease at doing business, we came 164th in the world in ability to get an electrical permit. That is not good. We were 62nd as related to construction permits. In other words, there were 60 countries in the world better than Canada in processing construction permits and over 160 in the world better at processing electrical permits. And this, so is, the OEC, this is the OECD? This is the World Bank. The World Bank, I'm sorry, the World Bank. Anybody could Google today, if they're listening to my voice, they can go into the World Bank, Google in the World Bank, go into their website, and put in the study, Ease of Doing Business. And it'll come up, and you can go down, and people can read it for themselves. Now, when I put this on my blog, and when I talk to people about that, the, the reaction I get is complete and utter silence. That's what you're getting from me right now. <laughs> But and then then I you know I asked them and they said, well first of all they don't believe me right I'm, I've exaggerated it mm -hmm. I, I've ex I've definitely exaggerated it. and so then I say to them go to the World Bank website and find it out for yourself. Never have I heard back from anybody that I spoke to either online on my blog or personally in person have ever ever gotten back to me to say wow you know this is terrible this is awful. Uh, they'll just go silent and you'll hear no more. This is alarming. This is absolutely alarming. If there are more than 160 countries that do uh, that are faster or better at processing... At processing an electrical permit yeah, and, yeah. and 60 better at doing wow. uh, a construction permit. Wow. So here we are. We're, we've just a few days after the uh, the Monday election. Now, I know you have a lot of thoughts on, on that and you've blogged on it. Uh, Canadian election results, question mark, I'll say it. That's one of your blogs. And the other one is, so now what? So let me take a quick break, Premier, yep, and we'll okay. come back and we'll hear what you have to say about now what. Okay. Premier Brian Peckford, former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. He's one of the very, very best. And uh, his blog again is uh, Peckford42, the numbers four and two, peckford42.wordpress.com. Email from, uh, I just got the letter C here because I won't give out the last um, last name. Writes, I've lived in Saskatchewan for six decades. I have absolutely no inclination to separate from the rest of Canada. And I haven't heard from anyone personally who is for separation. This talk of separation is being fueled by a very small number of people. And most of those people would change direction once they realize the economic wasteland Saskatchewan and Alberta would come become without the rest of Canada. Send your emails to Roy at RoyGreenshow.com. Back to Brian Peckford, former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, who blogs at Peckford42.wordpress.com. Premier show, the election's Monday. Here we are on Sunday. What are some of the... And by the way, we're going to be speaking with the uh, former Acting Chief Justice and Associate Chief Justice for Manitoba, um, Brian Giesbrecht is going to be on after you, and he has a lot to say about pipelines and getting uh, getting oil to the to the west coast. He said BC really isn't necessary in the equation. So, so we'll talk to the former acting chief justice of Manitoba about that. So here we are Sunday, Premier. Your thoughts on the election? Well, I think uh, for listeners uh, listening to your program now, the best 
I could do is the following. Number one is that I think people should be watching closely now as to how the NDP operates within this new political arena. Will they support the government on legislation? Will they support them on the throne speech and on the budget? The liberal minority government is going to need a friend. And it looks like, from everything we, we can see and hear, that that friend is likely to be the NDP. What will be the cost of their support? Will it vary from if it's a throne speech, our cost of our support is A. If it's a piece of legislation, the cost of our support is B, whatever. That's a very important thing to watch because we are in a minority situation. The second thing I think we should watch for and look out for, which may not happen, but I think it's extremely important, the opposition parties now have an opportunity to revisit SNC-Lavalin scandal and get an inquiry going so that we find out exactly what happened. The uh, ethics commissioner was unable to interview certain people, the RCMP the same way, so we don't have a fulsome or a full uh, accounting as to what happened. And we know there's been obstruction of justice. The ethics commissioner said that. So if the opposition parties are really serious about holding the liberal government's feet to the fire and looking for honesty and ethics in federal politics, here's their opportunity to cause an inquiry to occur so we get the bottom of this and clean up the federal political scene. Thirdly, I want to say, and I think this is important for Canadians outside of Western Canada to understand, when people talk about the Trans Mountain Highway um, the pipeline and say, okay, that's going ahead, so everything is fine. The Trans Mountain Pipeline is not the issue. The issue, that's an existing project, and it's just an expansion. And by the way, it's a flawed project because we've got to pay for it. So don't bring up something that we're, we already own and which we should never have to pay $4.5 billion to get going. It should be done by the private sector. The issue for Western Canadians is the following. Northern Pipeline cancelled. Energy East Pipeline cancelled. Bill 48 stopping tankers on the West Coast, and they're not doing it on the East Coast. Bill 69, which effectively, through its regulations, stops any further energy development in Western Canada. It is these issues that the Eastern Canadians have got to understand is why Western Canadians are so upset. Do you think that's going to happen? You're now, uh, you're now in Western Canada. You're in British Columbia. Yep. What's your sense? And all your political know-how and your experience, and you've been through the wars... What do you think is going to come from all of the things you've just raised? What will happen? I'm afraid that there will be some window dressing, and people will continue to talk about the Trans Mountain, and that's not the issue. That's not where the focus should be. And it's a matter of attitude. It's a matter of attitude. And, and people I've spoken to since the election, back east, my home, back in, not particularly in Newfoundland in this case, but back east from, from uh, western Canada, in talking to people and, and people I talk to on the blog and so on, there is still this attitude of the Western Canada is whining. And that's got to stop because that means there's an attitude that Western Canada is fine and nothing has happened which has really hurt them. When a lot of things that I just listed have happened, and, and of course the carbon tax is another one. Talk about people going to Texas, there you go, the carbon tax. So. There's got to be a change in attitude in Ottawa in particular and in eastern Canada in general to 
what the issues are, <clears throat> what the issues are in Western Canada, which makes them feel that they're not appreciated. And until that happens, that attitude changes. It's very difficult to get anything manifested in legislation or in policy that will change matters. I had a conversation with a friend the other day, uh, just on the phone, mm-hmm. and I, I said one of the critical issues, this is post-election, I said one of the critical issues that we face is we don't know each other very well in Canada. We, we are so regional. We just don't know each other very well. We know that, yeah, that's part of the country, and that's part of the country, and they have that color license plate, and we have this color license plate, and that's their area code, and this is ours. But beyond that, we just don't know each other very well. I, I agree with that statement completely. And, and that means that <clears throat> there's got to be, <clears throat> in our school systems, right. there's got to be more travel uh, of Canadians in Canada. Yeah. And in our school systems, there's got to be more history and geography. Yes, indeed. And, and cultural uh, stuff. Uh, that that speaks to various parts of this I have country. To, I have to jump in, Premier, and you know what it is. It's the big hand and the little hand and that yes. other one that spins around faster. Thank you for the time. Always, it's, always a, it's always a pleasure to hear you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, so I came across, uh, um, actually it was a listener who sent this to Eric, sent it to me. He's in, uh, in BC, sends me a lot of good stuff. And uh, thank you, Eric. I always appreciate hearing from you. And he sent me a column that uh, has, was written by Brian Giesbrecht. And uh, Justice Brian Giesbrecht served as the acting chief justice and associate chief justice for the province of Manitoba and uh, is a senior fellow at the Frontier Center for Public Policy. And Justice Giesbrecht joins us on the program. Uh, Mr. Justice, thank you very much for taking the time. Oh, uh, no problem at all, Roy. Let me uh, let me just read your what appears to be the first paragraph, at least in, in, in the copy of your column that I have, and then ask you to pick it up from there. You're right. Canada is in trouble. Half the population believes we are in a climate crisis, one requiring shutting down our oil and gas industry. The other half recognizes that our oil and gas industry is vital and our ecological problems can be managed. Uh, to make matters worse, the fault line for these competing sets of beliefs runs roughly along an east-west divide, and the re-elected Liberal Party ran on an unwritten policy of screw the West, we'll take the rest. This country is in serious trouble. So where do we go from there? Where does your, where does your column take us? What do you identify as the problem, and what, what do we do about it? Well, I, I'm uh, I'm I'm not sure that uh, that uh, uh, we go directly to uh, um, uh, a separation scenario. I think that's uh, probably not what will happen. My guess is that um, uh, people will start uh, exploring different alternatives. And uh, uh, right now, Alberta is being uh, uh, landlocked. They're not allowed to get their um, and natural gas and oil to markets properly, and um, the, everybody, the East and and uh, even British Columbia, seems to be preventing them from doing that. So there might be other alternatives, and what I'm saying, every one of these alternatives to me is a bad thing because every one of them will will weaken the bonds that keep this country together. And I'm I just suggested uh, 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 one possible. Um, scenario where uh, Alberta starts looking south. I wrote a column last uh, uh, last year called Montana North, which would give you uh, some uh, some idea of what I'm talking about. Right. Developing relationships with uh, 
with the northern states where the thinking is much more like uh, uh, a Westerner's thinking. Uh, people believe that the oil and gas industry is a vital industry, and uh, you have to develop markets for it, etc. So I just I just proposed the idea of uh, looking at um, um, a pipeline uh, to Seattle. Uh, you know, it's about the same distance from Calgary to to uh, Vancouver as it is from Calgary to Seattle. So, um, and I'm not uh, suggesting that this is actually going to happen, but I'm saying it's probably one of the ideas that, uh, uh, the type of ideas that are now going to be considered, because uh, Alberta and the West are not, or I do not believe, are simply going to uh, uh, to, to sit there and, and allow themselves to, uh, uh, to be uh, shut down. I, I, I believe that the thinking in in the West, and probably with a good deal of the population, is that the climate crisis uh, idea has been vastly overblown, and that the fossil fuel industry is going to be with us for some for some time. So I, that that was the the uh, the the uh, idea I put forward in that particular article. It was interesting what you wrote uh, in in part here. Canada is the only oil and gas exporting nation in the world intent on committing fossil fuel suicide. By contrast, the United States has gone from being an energy importing nation to energy self-sufficiency. In 2020, it will be an energy exporter, and its emissions have gone down, not up, with increased natural gas consumption emitting less than half the carbon dioxide per unit of energy produced by coal. So um, you're making the case that that, uh, that the Americans uh, have a better handle on this than we do, and I, I really, it, what caught my attention, uh, Justice Giesbrecht, was Canada is the only oil and gas exporting nation in the world intent on committing fossil fuel suicide. It, um, we are we are shooting ourselves in both kneecaps. Well, I, I certainly uh, I certainly think so, and and uh, to me, uh, and particularly with natural gas, we have uh, an enormous opportunity because Canada has vast reserves of. Uh, uh, of, of natural gas, which are uh, undeveloped for all sorts of reasons. Now, um, um, three, uh, you know, most of the uh, electricity uh, ge- uh, generation I- in the world—China, India, Africa, Eastern Europe—is is is from coal, and uh, natural gas is is uh, more than you know, uh, more than uh, is much much cleaner than coal. Mm-hmm. We have a we have a huge opportunity if we could. Uh, develop markets to sell natural gas uh, to some of the countries that are now putting up uh, and still putting up uh, coal-fired electricity generating stations. It seems like a natural, and uh, this would require cooperation from the other provinces so that we could uh, pipeline the gas to uh, uh, to terminals uh, on the coast and then uh, uh, and then uh, sell it to various markets. But we don't do that. Instead, what we do is is uh, have endless debates about a climate crisis. Instead of saying yes, we have ecological problems which have to be addressed, but this is not a crisis. This is not a catastrophe, and we're simply nuts for for shutting down our oil and gas industry. We're all going to be the poorer for it. Well, uh, I'm sure I'll be hearing uh, from uh, from listeners on that. And I, I appreciate you coming on the on the program. I hope you'll come back. I certainly will. I'll be uh, uh, happy to write. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Brian Giesbrecht is the former acting chief justice and associate chief justice 
for the province of Manitoba and a senior fellow at the Frontier Centre for Public Policy. So, reading about a Texas realtor, his name is Robert Graham, and Mr. Graham has uh, brochures in B.C., Alberta, and Saskatchewan, which uh, the cover of which feature the Texas flag as a backdrop and shows an arrow pointing from Alberta to Texas. And the brochure reads, Arrow Star Realty invites you to relocate to Texas, join the hundreds of companies that have already made the move. And according to the news story I read, Mr. Graham and uh, his company have found locations in Texas for more than 100 Canadian companies in the past 10 years and 40 in the last year and a half. And Robert Graham joins us from Texas. Mr. Graham, thank you very much for the time. Oh, thank you. So is it a case where you identified opportunity and offered your services to Western companies? Yeah, the way it came about was I have several Canadian clients that uh, I've been working with for years, probably 15, 16 years, and they've done a lot of different investments in this area, and we've done some industrial parks for them, and um, we ended up talking one day, and I was telling him, and he was telling me about all the taxing and everything that's going on in Canada and all the issues and and the uh, problems that are happening with all the companies and it, it, we just got to talk now. So, man, we got so many different tax incentives and so forth here. We are to see if we can't relocate some of them. Well, over time, they just kept coming more and more, and word of mouth kept getting to uh, out to everybody, and, and especially in the oil field industry. And um, anyhow, we built several industrial parks and filled them up, and we've got a bunch more underway right now, and we're hoping to help some more people. And ever since your election <laughs> last week, I guess it was the 21st, I believe, the calls have doubled. I, I look to move probably another hundred companies this next year. Wow! Within within within, within within twelve months, you're looking to move another hundred Canadian companies. I've got six six different companies coming down next week just to look at the area and um, start the process. So if I average those out, you know, six to ten a week, there's no telling how many we could end up doing. The calls, like I said, have just multiplied since the election. And from which provinces do you mostly hear from? That's a good question. Um, I'm hearing from Edmonton, um, Quebec, Ontario, uh, and you name it, really. I can't tell you the majority of them for anywhere. I, I probably get one from each main section of Canada every day. And, you know, Today alone, I've had three calls, which is strange for a Sunday, but so we're not talking just Western Canada, clearly. Clearly, yes, sir. So what are some of the attractions to a Canadian energy company or a Canadian company to move from this country to your area of Texas? What are the inducements? What, what Are the tax, are the tax I, benefits much better? They are. They really are. We're on a state and local level. Um, there's so many incentives. When you come in, they've got, you know, export. we got export taxes, uh, import taxes, sometimes deferred. You've got real estate property taxes that are less, and you just get more for your money here. You know, a house there will cost a million dollars. The same house here may be 500000 So you just you get more for your money, and you have a heck of a lot less taxing. You know, you've got a carbon tax. You've got taxes for everything that you look at, uh, just about. So what do Canadian business owners tell you about why they're willing to uproot, close down, and move operations to Texas? Taxes. That's it, huh? Taxes is the main thing that I hear. Yeah, I even have, uh, I even have a dentist office that's actually wanting to relocate here, which I thought was you know, very interesting that we're working with next week. 
But um, they just everybody is fed up with the taxing and the restrictions and the regulations, and you know, the, the majority of them say they're spending anywhere from fifty to sixty percent of their income on taxes. You know, if if that's the case, why would you even why would you even want to be a business owner if you're just going to be taxed to death? And, so you so so you've had over a hundred businesses so far, and you're looking at if if you're just using the numbers of calls that you're receiving and and looking at what you, you know what the graph says you should expect, you're looking at another hundred businesses in the next twelve months. That's what I'm predicting right now. The way this outturn has come out with that election uh, has really multiplied the calls. Does the uh, area, the Texas you're in, like the Lubbock area, do they provide any additional incentives to businesses? Like, you know, we'll build you a house, we'll send your kids to, to college as long as you employ, well, employ X number uh, of people? Well, I'm, actually, I'm actually not in the Lubbock area. I'm in Montgomery County. There's another group that's doing the same thing in the Lubbock area uh-huh. that uh, was in that article that uh, they originally came out with Bloomberg, but they are not, they're not buying houses or, or doing anything for, like that for you, but... They will, on a city level, they'll give them a tax break maybe up to five, ten years on property taxes. Uh, they'll even offer employees uh, training programs. They have grants for different things of that nature. Your utilities, you can get a tax-free on your utilities and merchandise and um, several other things in our local uh, office. The state offers quite a few grants and different um, All right. tax incentives. All right, Mr. Graham. I thank you for joining us. It's uh, it's it's uh, it's interesting news. It's concerning news to us, of course. We don't want to lose our companies and our employers, but I appreciate you coming on the air and talking to us. I completely understand, and I wish the best for Canada. It's by no means, the, you know, like I said, some of my biggest clients are Canadians. All right, sir. Hopefully, y'all can get thank you. Out. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for the time, Robert Graham from Aristar Realty in Texas. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.